Monopoly. You're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. You've just heard from Edmonton, Alberta on a Pop Echo record CD label, The Wit Sundays with Antisocial. Today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, interviews with Joan Jett. Super groupie Pamela DeBars and Feist. So, right now, Pamela DeBars before Pamela DeBars, Joan Jett, and then Feist. So, here is Joan Jett. Check, check, check. Check, check, check. Check, check, check. So, you like to say? I don't like to. Uh, I don't. Uh, Om Bor Bor Vasvaha. Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? I'm Joan Jett. Joan Jett, welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So here you are on the Warp Tour. A couple dates ago, did you play a gig with the Germs, the Germs and Joan Jett together on the Warp Tour? Yes, yes, we did. We weren't on the same stage, but we were, you know, in close proximity. So uh, it was a lot of fun to see him again. And you're in the new Germs movie, too? Well, I'm not sure. Well, there's a couple of different movies, so I'm not sure which one. I know that they're doing a documentary, which I recently spoke to, uh, the woman doing it. So, yeah, I'll be in that one, yeah. But you're not in the actual Shane West movie? I personally am not, but I'm not sure if they have someone in there playing me or not. Now, Joan, you produced the germs. Did you really see Lemmy of Motorhead beat up Darby? (laughs) I saw him try, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because Darby came to see us in England, and, uh, you know, he was probably a bit out of it and was just 
probably jumped on. I think he jumped on stage or something like that because I don't remember so clearly either. But uh, and and Lemmy and some of the boys started beating on him, and I'm like, no, he's a friend of mine, you know. And Kenny Laguna, my uh, songwriting partner, we had to stop stop the beating. Joan Jett, you have your own record label and you're still kicking and rocking with a brand new band, pretty much brand new to your label, the Eyeliners. Yes, yes, the Eyeliners are from Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're three sisters and they play great sort of uh, hooky punk rock music with uh, great melodies. And you're in your brand new video, spray painting a cop car. Was that a lifelong dream of yours, to spray paint a cop car, Joan Jett? <laughs> yeah, that was fun, definitely. Get my licks back, yeah. Joan Jett, on the Warp Tour a couple days ago, there was an all-female rock band called The Randys from L.A. I don't know if you remember them or not. And they said there was a quote coming from you that said, Joan Jett said this, it's all about the blank in rock. It's Gotta keep the blank in rock. What, what, what are they saying? I wonder what I said. I could have been several different words that I used. But I guess putting any word in there, what do you think, Joan Jett? Gotta keep the blank in rock. It's all about the blank in rock. Is it really, Joan Jett, all about the <laughs> blank in rock? Yeah, you know, it's all about, really, it's about the connection. And part of that connection is, is uh, really guttural and, and um, sexual. And I think that's some of the resistance that people have with women playing rock. Because rock and roll is, is that. It goes right to your crotch. And it should. Joan Jett, you have a new song called Bad Time. Yeah, that's one of the songs on the new, on the new CD, yeah. Did Canada at one time give the Runaways a bad time when you opened up for Rush? Were Rush mean to the Runaways? Well, so I believe some of the guys in, in Rush weren't, weren't really Runaways fans and probably made a few remarks here and there, yeah. Now, why would that happen? Rush, I mean, that's like Canada's national band. Have you seen them since? Do you have any idea why they do that? Can you remember anything about that incident? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of vague because it was so long ago. But uh, I think one of the guys said something derogatory about us, or you know, standing side stage or something. And you know, I just was probably very angry at the time. But as I look back on it, you know, you just have to try to take it with a grain of salt and figure he fits into one of the with the many people that are threatened by women playing rock and roll. And it wasn't about the music. I maybe maybe. The audience liked us better or something. Bev, many people in Canada do love you, especially photographer Bev Davies. She took these shots here, I don't know if you remember, from the Commodore Ballroom in 1980. I don't know if you remember that gig at all. I don't, actually, but I remember the time. Now, looking closely, what are you wearing? I, I don't know what the hell that is. There is something around your neck. Is that a baby pacifier around your neck? Yes, it is. It's a pacifier, and that is sort of... Um, a remembrance or, or something to signify something that I went through in the Runaways. And, and when the Runaways went to Scandinavia for the first time, to Sweden, uh, we got off the plane and were greeted by hundreds of beautiful girls, blonde girls, like young teenagers, wearing real pacifiers and sucking on them and saying, can we have your autograph? And we were like totally confused by the whole experience you know we had just come from japan where we were also held in high esteem by all the all the young girls and i understood that a little more because japanese society sort of you know women are second-class citizens so the girls were looking at us sort of 
as empowering them, I suppose. But the whole uh, pacifier thing, I was confused, and I asked someone, and they said it's it's sort of a it's a fad, it's a fashion. So one day I found a silver pacifier in a in a jewelry store, and I just had to get it, and that's what that's about. From Vancouver, 1980, Joan Jett. Yes. Now, another Canadian that loves you is Peaches. Peaches loves you, and you love Peaches, too. Yeah, I think Peaches is great, actually. I, th- I think she's a lot of fun. Her music is a lot of fun. And uh, I-, I just saw her, actually, play opening for Nine Inch Nails in Milwaukee a couple, couple weeks ago. Joan Jett, Peaches loves feminine body hair. Do you think feminine body hair is underrated? Yeah, I guess it depends on who you ask, definitely. Joan Jett, you also have a song called Fetish. Yes. Now, speaking of fetishes, is it true that the Runaways once made a pee popsicle? Yeah, that is true. I have this quote. We gave one guy who messed with us a popsicle that was 10% lemonade and 90% pee. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't all the runaways. That was actually at my, my party house that we used to keep them there for if we needed them. Then he goes, this tastes like shit. Without missing a beat, Joan Jett said, you're getting close. <laughs> well, I don't know if that was exactly the, uh, the words because I don't, I, I don't remember who would have been there to actually repeat, but that sounds pretty close. So why did he get a pee popsicle? And did a lot of stuff happen? Like, if you mess with the Runaways, you're going to get it. Well, I, I'm not really sure exactly where the pee popsicle thing came from. It was more like revenge on people that would screw with my friends and I. And, uh, and you know, maybe the Runaways, too. Joan Jett, are you ever going to do another rap? Like, you worked with Grandmaster Flash. Is there going to be ever another Joan Jett rap? Never say never. Maybe. Joan Jett, I want to read you a quote from the book The Boy Looked at Johnny. It's by Julie Burchell and Tony Parsons from 1978, and it's all about punk rock. I don't know if you're familiar with this book at all. I am. I am. I know both of them, yeah. It's amazing. Joan Jett is the last rock and roll star as you know it in the world. Never again will glamour, youth, melody, and desperation find their way onto a big-time stage within one teenage body. How can you, you know, how can you even comment on something like that? I think that they're, they're, they were great writers and good friends of mine, and I just feel very humbled by those statements. It's incredible, because they were complete punks. They hated everything American except Joan Jett. Let me continue. After Joan Jett, all Americans are peanuts. <laughs> then they go on to say, Polly Styron of the X-Ray Specs is the best thing about British punk rock, while Joan Jett is the best thing about American punk rock. I just, um, I, I'm and, very uh, grateful. It's incredible, and that is coming in like 1977, 1978, at the height of punk rock. You are held in esteem by these snobby punks. That must have been a great feeling. It sure was. I remember at the time when they wrote that, and it did make me feel very good, definitely. Joan Jett, did you also party on Sid Vicious's houseboat, and did Sid Vicious really have a houseboat? It wasn't Sid's. It was the Runaways. We rented it for uh, a couple of weeks because we were there to make a, a record. And so we were living on the Thames River on a houseboat. And we never made the record because things fell through. So it wound up just sort of being a party boat. And some of the girls would party with their friends, which was more like a, a heavy metal party thing. And my friends were people like Sid and Nancy. 
Junjian, were you really rescued by Manuel Noriega? No. What do you mean? You were in Panama, and you had to be, like, flown out by helicopter by Manuel Noriega. Well, I remember being in Panama, but I don't remember the whole... I, I believe he was a fan, or he wanted, wanted to meet me, or... Can I refresh you? Am I wrecking everything? No, go ahead. Come on over, Kenny Laguna. Kenny, come in. This is... Could you please introduce who do we have here, Joan Jack? Yeah, Kenny Laguna is my songwriting partner, and he... Produ produ <laughs> Good one. He produces all my records, and he's my best friend now for probably 25 years at least. Welcome, Kenny. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. Back to Manuel Noriega. Well, we, uh, we were the first English-speaking band of note ever to go to Panama, even though those guys had that song, Panama. No one ever went. No Australians, no Brits, no Canadians. So we were in there with the first rock and roll band, and uh, Panama as a whole country had uh, bootlegged MTV. So they were all watching MTV, and when Joan got there, it was a huge thing. We did a television show. It was a live television show where we were doing five songs. I'm pretty sure it was a lip sync. By the time we were done, there were so many thousands of kids outside the television studio that a riot ensued. And Noriega's troops did come and settle that down. And it was chaos. We actually lost the guitar player. And, and when John and I were escaping in the car, we were escaping. We ran over his foot. And uh, he, we left him behind. <laughs> it was a very interesting thing. But, you know, the Army got everybody out. And then a day went by, and some of the officials came, and they were all nervous. You could see, and they said that Noriega had sent his presidential plane from another city in Panama and wanted Joan to get on that plane and spend the evening at the palace with him. And Joan was like, no way. No I'm way. not doing it. An evening at the palace with Noriega. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't that sound a little, <laughs> little frightening? Alone. So, but then, remember, Noriega's still running the country, so then the State Department, who watch when you're doing these things, and we were involved with, uh, you know, the American government hooked us up with this, and that Joan actually opened the Panama Canal physically with the wee big wheel. I mean, we were plugged in, but they were all nervous about this because the protocol has to be handled carefully. So they worked out something weird, and they whisked us out of the country on American military. And, uh, you know, you guys know about the American military, right? Thank you very much for the update. Kenny always comes through, doesn't he, Joan? Yeah, well, he remembers those details. They just kind of go... Joan, you have a song called Change the World. Yes, I do. Do you have any tips for winning over an audience? Because in 1982, you played a police picnic in Toronto. Do you remember that? A police picnic? It was called the police picnic. I think the police played. And rad. I, how could you know all this stuff? You know all these little things. Where do you find all this stuff? Well, at the police picnic, I understand people were throwing hot dog and watermelon rinds at you, Joan, and you were over able to overcome this. How do you win them over? Like, you were just going, how you doing, Toronto? And by the end, they loved you. You know, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just an ability to take the shots, and so I'm not sure. Sometimes I remember that gig. I remember that gig. See, here's the thing: we we did the tour before every breath you take with the police, and it was an amazing tour, and we were about equal at that point. And then they put out that record, and we had hits that same year, but they had that monster record, "Every Breath You Take," and we started doing stadiums together. So we did two tours in a row with the police. When we had a show, let's say, where the Kinks would be on it or, uh, you know, a good rock and roll band, the Ramones or something like that, Joan and the police drew a certain kind of audience that was terrific and compatible. In Toronto that year, they put on, like, Talking Heads, Flock of Seagulls, and it was all these snobby kind of things going on where they were saying, oh, rock and roll isn't good enough for us. 
we have something else we're doing, whatever they called it. And I know when Joan got on the stage, the sky went black with garbage that they were thrown on the stage. And Joan doesn't really give in that easily. Yeah, well, you know, I've been hit with so many things. And in the runaways, I've been spit on. And I've been, spit, you know, hit with so many things and called so many things. I'm not leaving the stage. Nobody's getting me to leave the stage. Throwing hot dogs? I don't think so. You know, so I think just... And even watermelon rinds, how dare they? Well, oh, I, I don't remember. know. There was, a, there was a big sign, I hate rock and roll, you know, yeah, which is like, I, you know what? I'm I'm crushed. You see you what know? Flock of Seagulls looks like today? You see what she looks I've like? I've actually interviewed them. Well, you know, they're good guys, I guess, but, you know, look what she looks like. No, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's not even about being personal. It's just like... It's more about standing your ground, and I'm not sure what I've what I would have said on stage because sometimes I I get you know I get antagonistic back at people throwing things because you can get hurt. But you overcame the moment, which I think is amazing. A lot of performers probably would have crumbled, but the reports were that you did it, Joan. You overcame all uh, these yeah, punkers. I'm not sure how I did that. I'm people not sure. like how you doing? You kept going, how you doing? How you doing? And by the end, people were totally into it. Maybe yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, June Jet, winding up here, I also want to ask you about Evil Stig. You contributed to the Evil Stig recording, and in the end, that totally helped out Mia Zapata's murder. A cold case was actually solved. That must make you feel great. Oh, we were so, all so happy when, when we heard that they caught the killer. But that was uh, a very intense time. It was very moving. It was It was special. It was sad, but it was also exhilarating to be able to do the Gits material and be able to sing those songs that Mia sang and made popular with her with her fans and to take it around the country and explain what had happened to people and to be in this band Evil Stig which means Gits live that's backwards you know so it, it, I'm, I'm just really honored to have been a part of it I have a song here from a Runaways tribute band called Cherry Bomb, and they actually have one original song called Runaways Rule. The woman, Christine, is from Portland. I think she has a Runaways or Joan Jett tattoo, and these are the lyrics. I just want to quickly run them by you. Runaways Rule. This is their original. Rock and roll rebel with a cherry bomb. All your records are banned by mom. I like that. Joan Jett and the Germs, Little Darby. Lita Ford loves big hair and Ozzy. Uh, Cherry Curry was a fox with Jody doing the teenage twist like Boney Maroney. <laughs> Leather latex and lingerie. Runaways, you make my day. I like it. Because runaways rock, runaways rule, runaways going to take you back to girl school. Girl school. I knew that one. Yeah, that was a common there. So I guess what I was wondering, what's it like fighting Chuck Norris? Well, you're not going to win. Really? Yeah. Did you train hard for that? No. Well, actually, I think uh, I did. This was a in a movie in Walker, right? Yes, it was TV. in Walker, Texas, Texas Ranger, and uh, I think they had a st eventually had a stunt person in there to to do, you know, the real killing. Your honesty is deplorable. Is there any way, perhaps, you might have been trained at all? Because wasn't Lita Ford a fitness instructor at one time? Sure. Oh, Sherry Curry, okay. But have you ever taken classes from her? Uh, no, I didn't need to. Joan Jett, also winding up here, Lita Ford, did you ever go to her apartment that she shared with Nikki Six in that roach-infested apartment? No. Where no. Where like, watched cockroaches, like, get burned up? No, I think, you know, we were already broken up by that time, so we weren't hanging out. 
Joan Chet, the first time you shaved your head, was that for the Rocky Horror Picture Show? No, I actually did it to mark the millennium, to mark this sort of uh, change from 1999 to 2000, and sort of kind of take stock of who I am and who we are as humans. And so it was just sort of a, I, I don't know, a marker or something. And then I just decided to keep it. Because the brand new CD, The Greatest Hits reissue, has you with long hair and before it had you with short hair. Any reason for changing it? Well, I think we wanted to use a picture that people were more familiar with the look of my black hair and the blonde hair a lot of times throws people. It was remastered also. It was remastered. It sounds a million times better now because new technology ensued and the new one has an enhanced element that's terrific. So. You know, we wanted to do something also so that we could see the difference and make sure that the uh, stores weren't selling off the old stuff because we wanted to send it back so that we could give the best one. And that's why we changed the cover, too. And there's Kenny Laguna again to the rescue. I'm excited because Kenny was in the 1910 Fruit Gun Company. Yes, he was, and Tommy James and the Shondells and several others. All that stuff that makes you say bubble. Gum. Now, lastly here, I want to ask you about this book. Are you familiar with this book here at all? The Devil's Disciples. I'm not. The Devil's Disciples, The Truth About Rock. What I would does it say? Well, what it says, Joan Jett, is I open it up here. The Devil's Disciples, The Truth About Rock. Very scary, The Devil's Disciples. In 1982, Joan Jett put out a record which included a version on cassette of an old Rolling Stones tune called Star Fucker. With a title like that, she should have known better. But rock stars think they can get away with anything as long as we let them. When the Stones tried to market the same tune, their record label made them change the title to Star Star <laughs> and mumble their way through the offensive lyric, which they did. Joan didn't bother. And boy, was she sorry. When that K-Market chain found out about the song, they refused to handle the product and started shipping back the tapes. Since cassettes now outsell albums, that hurt. Jet manager Kenny Laguna says they lost $225,000 in sales the first two weeks of the boycott. As other retailers heard of Kmart's action, they also followed suit. And before long, Joan Jett's new album was stalled on the charts and falling. The Devil's Disciple. What's the story behind that? What the hell was going on? How'd you get in this satanic book? Uh, that is hysterical. You got me. I don't know how I wound up in there. But... Do you remember any of that, Kenny? I totally remember it because I got yelled at by all the marketing people. But uh, what happened was we went into the... Uh, the artwork gets done ahead of time because that's the longest lead time. And we had finished the artwork. And in those days, if you remember, cassettes would be uneven. So there'd be this long blank thing if one side was longer than another. So we had just enough time blank on side one to stick something in. And we looked at what was in the can. And we'd done Star Star Starfucker as a... You know, a groove, because we were playing it live. It was a big number for us live, and we just recorded it and had it in the can. And we're in the mastering room, and at the last second, we said, Let, let's give them some extra music. And we thought that was a cool cut. We didn't really think the whole thing through. And uh, when 
they discovered it. Remember, it was unmarked, so that, that's the thing that got us in trouble. It didn't have a, you know, any kind of warning for parents, so they'd bring it home after having, you know, I Love Rock and Roll didn't really have any racy lyrics, so, you know, they, they'd get through the whole thing, and all of a sudden, these parents would be listening to this thing and just freak out, just like I did when I had my little kid bought the Guns N' Roses record with them. Um, You're fucking crazy, you know, and so, but, but we did get into a, a big hassle, and then John and I spent the next three months going around the country and going to the head offices and apologizing and you know in the end we made some good relationships and in the end you made the book the devil's disciples congratulations I'm, yeah i'm proud of that i know that is this totally awesome well thanks so much for your time june jet and kenny laguna i think kenny's also totally amazing not this is the uh, kenny celebrity roast or anything but he got you together with some beach boys Yes. Like, that's not too exciting for you, I don't think, is it? Like, the Beach no, Boys. I, I yeah. definitely enjoyed it. But you sure. got the Beach Boys. Yeah, you were able to fulfill a fantasy yes. to be able to get the Beach Boys on a Joan Jett recording. Thank Where do you. you. Get all this stuff. Your research is, is amazing. Where do you get all this stuff? Well, when you guys do so much great music, it's pretty hard to ignore it. Thank you. When you make it to the Devil's Disciples, I really appreciate that. Beach Boys, Beach Boys moment with Joan was one of the best moments of my life. And one of the really interesting things that happened there was. Darlene Love was on our label, on Blackheart Records, and Darlene Love sang the Do Run Run, and He's a Rebel, and Today I Met the Boy I'm Gonna Marry. She's a legendary singer for Phil Spector. So Darlene Love was with us, and she came in, and when, when Carl Wilson, rest his soul, came by, and he said, well, who's gonna be doing these backgrounds with us? I said, well, Darlene Love is there, and he says, Darlene? Darlene sang on all our records. She helped arrange In My Room and Why Do Fools Fall in Love. I'm going, you're kidding. And, and I said, Darlene, you never mentioned it. All she talks about is Tom Jones, you know, because she's from another era. And I said, oh, my God. So then we had Darlene, who was actually on all these original Beach Boy records. And gradually, all the Beach Boys would never go in the same place together. They all showed up because we only invited one. On Joan Jett's record, Joan Jett, anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Just that I'm very excited to be here in Canada, and I look forward to doing shows and meeting the audiences. And Did you mention the name of our new record, Sinner? It's called Sinner, so Sinner. that devil's disciple, you know? If you don't own this record, give up. Why should people care about Joan Jett? Why should people care? I'm the wrong person to ask that question. Why should people care about Joan Jett, Kenny? No, I can't because talk about I mean, yeah. it's very hard for me to, you know, say that. Joan, first of all, when she started in The Runaways, they were doing it in a vacuum. There was no model. There was nobody to really to, to point to or to compare to. They were in a vacuum. They took a lot of abuse, a lot of hits for the home team, and, and that's one reason. And the other thing is that Joan has never changed her style or her focus to adjust to the, 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 the music world around her. She's always been out of style from the get-go and has managed to have a few hits in spite of it. Well, thanks so much, June Jet and Kenny Laguna. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 She got
Who are you? Pamela DeBar. Pamela, show me your book right now. It has an extremely hot cover. Certainly. Here it is. And what book is this for people that don't know? It's called I'm With The Band, Confessions of a Groupie. Uh, it came out originally in 87, and it's just been republished with a new intro by Dave Navarro, who's pretty hot, and with a bunch of new pages that I wrote. Addendum. Pamela, looking at the cover of the book, it's censored, isn't it? What happened there? Well, I was naked. I was a naked hippie girl, and in, unfortunately in America, they have to hide the titty. So uh, this is the original of it. In England, this is the cover. They didn't hide the titty in England, you know. They probably wouldn't in Canada either, but in America, this is what you get. They get Pamela? What? They bar. They censor. Yes. <laughs> Pamela, what did the Beatles smell like? I never got close, to them, unfortunately, to smell them. I thought you could smell them, like you were looking for them and you could smell them. Well, I th I w no, I never got close enough to smell them. I actually met Paul McCartney recently, though, and I, I tried to get a whiff, but that girl, was Heather, was too close by. Pamela, you've probably said that quite a few times, haven't you? That girl was a bit too close by. <laughs> no, because I was never a cheater. I was never with married guys. I was always wanting to marry one of them. I didn't want to, you know, steal one away from someone else. You are the most famous groupie in the world, and yet you've never, ever had a one-night stand? No. I was willing to have a one-night stand with Waylon Jennings, but it turned into two years. So, but I was willing, because he was sort of out of my realm. He was a country star, and I was in the rock world, but he turned me on. Now, Pamela, one of the people you did get intimate with was Led Zeppelin. What did Led Zeppelin smell like? One of the people, there were four people in Led Zeppelin. But I was only with Jimmy Page, and he smelled divine. Pamela, your new book, I'm with the... Band. Recently reissued with censored cover. Yes. The introduction is done by... Dave Navarro. So the question arises, Pamela... What does he what smell like? <laughs> Well, actually, a bit more than that. No, no, no. We, we're just friends. What did Dave Navarro taste like? <laughs> I'm not going to say. I'm not telling. What does he smell like then? No, he smells very sexy. Sort of like uh, that that oil, that, uh, that hippie oil. What is that? Musk. Yeah. <laughs> Pamela DeBar, here's a quote I think attributed to you. Hey, I went after what I wanted, and I got it. Gloria Steinem can kiss my ass. <laughs> Something like that. Because she sort of put me down when the book came out, because at being anti-feminist, which is so lame, because I was a woman, and I was a woman doing what I wanted to do. Isn't that what feminism is? That's what I think. So, yeah, I said that probably. Pamela DeBar, is there a male version of Pamela DeBar? Actually, yes, there is. Uh, I just met him recently. He's in my new book. His name is Pleather, and that's because he has certain attributes that show up in his pleather pants. And he, he has slept with everybody from Courtney Love to all of L7. To, anyway, he's in my new book. Um, it's called Let's Spend the Night Together. It's coming out in a year. And you name names in that group? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in that book? In that book, yes. The, the girls name names. Pamela DeBar, one of the interesting things about you is not only are you arguably the most famous groupie in the world, you were also in one of the first all-girl punk bands, the GTOs. I guess you could call us punk. I don't know. We were more performance art. It was, it was in 1968, 69, and 70, so it was very pre-punk. But, uh, yeah, we were the first all-girl group. We were backed by the Mothers of Invention. Uh, Frank Zappa produced us. It was pretty far out. Now, were there any other all-girl groups at that time around Pamela? There were a couple. Fanny was a girl, a girl group that they were a band. They played instruments, and um, I think that was it. I think it was just us and Fanny at that point. The Runaways came much later. 
Pamela, one interesting thing about the GTOs, you had John Bonham play drums for you. What was it like having John Bonham of Led Zeppelin carry on the bottom end? It was amazing. And the same night he played drums with us, we had Noel Redding on bass, who was Hendrix's, uh, you know, bass player. So it was a pretty amazing band. And we had Lowell George play on the record, Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart sang backups. And it was pretty intense. And we're just teenage girls, you know. Pamela DeBar, were there special groupie codes for getting to rock stars? What were the secret codes? I know Cynthia Plastercaster had special codes, like she would approach a rock star. And did you have a special language that you talked when you talked to a rock star? No. They usually approached me, to be honest. I was in this particular scene. Uh, I didn't have to go knock on backstage doors and all that stuff. They kind of came up to me and wanted to meet me, and I, I never really had to have any kind of code. I mean, there was a code of honor with me. I mean, I would never go after a, a band member that my girlfriend was crazy about, or I wouldn't be with two members in, in one band. That was a code. Pamela DeBar, what about your connections to Canada? Your connections to Canada. It's very important in a Pamela DeBar story, isn't it? Well, I love Canada. But I, I, do I have a special connection that I don't know about? I mean, I've been there. I've, I've been on TV shows there. I've toured there. I love Toronto. Anything else that I knew? <laughs> well, Pamela DeBar, you lost your virginity to a Canadian. No, I didn't. He's German. No, he's from Canada. Nick St. Nicholas? Yes, he grew up oh, in Canada. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, he's German originally. I always think of him as German. But yes, he did. He's still a good friend of mine. See, that's another thing about me. I stay friends with all my rock liaisons. It's very important to me. I just think it's great that Canada can play an important part. And I'm with a... Band! With Pamela. They are. Now, Pamela, what about Vancouver, BC, Canada? Did you ever travel with any of the bands? No. Like, did you ever go to any gigs up and down the coast? Do you have any memories of Canada at all, aside from that virginity little fling that happened in Los Angeles, we should clarify, no, no, right? No, I don't have many Canada memories, unfortunately. I've only been there recently. Since this book came out, I've toured there a couple times. Um, I've got a couple good friends there, but no. My, my ex-husband does a, plays a lot of villains up in Vancouver, but I don't... I don't I'd like to spend more time there, actually. That's Michael DeBar. Yes, Michael DeBar. And I think you have a great relationship with your ex-husband, don't oh, you? Yeah, it's perfect. He's like, like my brother. Like, you get along so well. It's so awesome. What are your hints for keeping so healthy and having such a great relationship with an ex? With an ex? Well, we love each other down deep. No matter all the bullshit that, that went on, it, that was minor compared to the actual love. And we had a son, you know. Our son came first. So we were able to put all that crap aside and focus on our love for our son, Nick, who is now 27 and living in Tokyo. Pamela DeBar, the drummer from Three Dog Night, was originally from Vancouver. What can you tell me about the Three Dog Night singer who apparently had so much sex, his cock split? Are we talking about Danny, Danny Hutton or... Corey Wells. No, Corey Wells was married. He was he was the guy I had a crush on, but we never did anything. I sat on his lap a few times, but he was married, so I didn't, yeah. I guess I'm talking about groupie injuries. Have you heard of anything? Like, people screwing so much that a cock will split. I've never heard of that. I was always just, I, I was a one-on-one -on -one girl. I didn't do weird things. I heard weird about weird things. I never did weird things. never saw weird things. <laughs> Nothing weird happened in front of you? No, no. Not in front of me. I heard about the weird things. It was Chuck Negron, and apparently oh. he was screwing so much, his cock split, and then he had to wrap it in a towel and then go to the hospital. Well, did he say that in his book? Is that, is it part of yes, his, in his, oh, okay. his book? Yes, in his book, Three Dog Nightmare. <laughs> Wow. That was one hell of a nightmare. <laughs> He's sober now, so it's wonderful. He's probably doing much better now. 
Pamela DeBar, one person know you did come in contact with, with Jim Morrison. Yes, I did. Now, can you confirm this at all, Pamela DeBar? Was it true he liked to shit on girls? I've never heard that. He was a perfect gentleman with me. I think that's just one of those ridiculous rumors like Frank Zappa taking a dump on stage and stuff. It just didn't happen, I'm sure. He was so young. My God, he did, who would have thought of that that young? I don't know. He's, he was a gentleman with me. All we did was make out. I was a virgin at the time. Pamela DeBar, Bill Wyman. You're with the rock and roll singer known as Mick. Mick Jagger, yes. Mick Jagger, but what about Bill Wyman? I heard that he once had 265 girls in two weeks. Is that possible? <laughs> um, did he say that? <laughs> it's probably in his book, right? I don't know. I didn't get to know Bill very well. I was just hanging around with Mick, really. What were the other Stones like? You know, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts. What were they like? Because we don't hear a lot about them, but they lived some pretty wild 265 in two weeks years. Well, Charlie Watts has been with the same woman since before the Stones. So I don't know. He didn't get up to much. But Mick used to bring him over to my house in London. And one time I was getting out of the bathtub and he literally covered Charlie's eyes. So he's a, he's, he's a quiet type, I think. Pamela DeBar, what about Tiny Tim? Is it true that he showered 10 times a day? Yes, it is. I'm a witness to that. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't in the shower with him, but he would leave the room and go take many showers. He, he got all hot and bothered. He was like, oh, couldn't take it. The GTOs were just too much for him. We would like sit on his lap and play with his hair and everything. And he kept having to go take a shower. Pamela DeBar, what about Joe Cocker and cheeseburgers? Did you hear anything about Joe Cocker and cheeseburgers? He loved cheeseburgers. No, I did not hear anything about Joe Cocker and cheeseburgers. How about some of the lesser known rock stars? Uh, like whom? Well, for instance, in the 1960s, the band The Seeds, Sky Saxon from The Seeds, he was a real sex god around L.A. Do you remember The Seeds from the mid-60s? Yes, I was very friendly with Sky. He's lost his mind since then. He's now named Sunshine, right? Sunlight, Sunshine, something like that. <laughs> but I loved The Seeds. God, they were great live. Yeah, I danced a lot to them. I heard a story where Mick Jagger once tried to knock down his door, or vice versa. Do you remember any animosity between the local groups in L.A. and the touring groups? Like, because you were, like, right there mixed in with everything. No, I remember no animosity at all. I remember a lot of respect for, for, for the British bands that came over. I, I don't remember any weirdness. Pamela DeBar, how into Satan was Jimmy Page? He was not into Satan. That's just bullshit. Mm-hmm. Did you notice anything, though? No. He, he liked Aleister Crowley. He really liked him. He admired him and respected him. I helped him purchase a, you know, a, a, a manuscript that he'd written on, and he was very happy to get that. He bought his cape. He bought his, his uh, mansion in Scotland. But, you know, it really, there was nothing dark about it. They never sold their souls to the devil or anything like that. Let's go back for a second. You bought an Aleister Crowley manuscript? That sounds fascinating. A first edition? Where'd you find that? What was that about? Well, that was 1969, so it was a long time ago. And it was a, I remember Jimmy sent me a $1,350 wire. That was a lot of money then. But can you imagine what that's worth now? I mean, yeah, it was a manuscript first. It wasn't even uh, it was a manuscript. It was scribbled with a, a crossouts and it was the first original manuscript from one of, one of his books. Pamela DeBar, what about the thought that Altamont was a pre-planned satanic ritual? You were there, weren't you, at Altamont, or were you around? What do you know about Altamont being a pre-planned satanic ritual? No, I was with the Stones there, so unpre-planned. It just happened to be, they gave too much power to the Hells Angels, and, and they, they caused a really bad, very negative energy in the air. It was very bad vibes. I left even before the Stones came on and met up with Mick afterwards at the hotel. So I, it was just such horrible energy. But it wasn't satanic and, or wasn't pre-planned either. <laughs> Pamela DeBar, you married Graham Parsons' daughter. 
Yes, I did. I... You married Graham Parsons' daughter. Well, she's my goddaughter, too. And she just had a baby girl, and I'm her godmother as well. But I married her to her husband. I'm a, a minister, so I can do that. Yeah, so how and why did you become a minister? Uh, I'm a very deeply spiritual girl. I, I try to live in the moment. I love everybody. I've got Jesus tattooed on my back. I just It just made sense that I would go in that direction. I do rock and roll weddings. You know, I use people's lyrics from the songs they love and weave them into the vows and stuff. If anybody wants, they can send for me and I'll marry you. That'll be pretty cool. Who has been married by Pamela DeBar so far? Graham Parsons' daughter? Graham Parsons' daughter and uh, some other good friends of mine and some publicist people. I've only just started and I've got two more weddings lined up this year. Pamela DeBar, your husband, Michael. DeBar. Your ex-husband. Yes. He described how in the mid-70s, the music moved from fuck music to fuck you music. Well, of course it did with the Sex Pistols and all that. And it needed that. It was getting too... I don't know. Lame. It needed a kick in the ass, and they gave it the right kick in the ass. Did you ever do any associations with Nancy Spungen at all, the Sex Pistols groupie? I, with the shit, that was all East Coast. I was a West Coast girl. Because I thought she hung out with the pretty things in L.A. Like, originally, she did some L.A. hanging out. Well, at that point, I had a, a small son, and I was not hanging out so much anymore at that, during that time. I recently, I'm hanging out a lot more these days. And here we are with you at South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas, Pamela DeBar. Last year, you hooked up with Robert Plant. That was pretty friend. exciting. Yes, we were, we were only ever friends, but we always had this fabulous flirtation. And so we continued that flirtation 30 years later. It was really fun. We had a blast. I was with him for days here. Right there in that hotel. In that hotel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question arises this year, Neil Young, Morrissey. <laughs> They were, I mean, I love Neil Young. I loved Buffalo Springfield, but, they, you know, they were never my... I didn't hang out with them. They were pretty wild, though, weren't they, the Buffalo Springfield yeah, dudes? They were original, you know, like with the Birds and Love and all the original L.A. bands. I saw them a million times, and I really admire them. And Morrissey loves James Dean, so I really appreciate that about him, but I never met him or anything. So you never talked to him at all? No. Mm-mm. Do you think he's hot, though? Like, how would he fit the profile of a rocker from way back when? Um, I think he's the intellectual type, kind of like David Bowie. There's, that's a whole other type, and it's just, I, I always preferred the more physical type, sweaty type. Now, Pamela, one of the bands also playing South by Southwest this year is Zolar X. Do you ever remember oh, Zolar X, the space they? rock band? Oh, I'd love to see them. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, we used to love and hang out with them. Good, Michael and Michael loved them. And they loved him. They loved Silverhead, the band he was in originally. So I remember them very well. Because when they were a giant gig, it was like the GTOs, Iggy and the Stooges, the Dolls, Zolar X. That was quite a gig, wasn't it? It never happened. But yes, it was supposed to be quite a gig. The tickets are worth a lot of money now because that gig never happened. No! <laughs> it was supposed to happen. It was advertised and planned and rehearsed. But for some reason, one of the bands, I forget which one, it just couldn't, it, it didn't happen for some reason. Pamela DeBar, what happened to GroupieCentral.com? It was such a great website, but now it's gone. Was it shut down because there was so much dirt on it? Yes, I think there was a... B.B. Buell had something to do with that. B.B. Buell, they were talking so much shit about her. I think she really had something to do with shutting that down. She, I think she did. She complained so much. So people are going to have to buy your new book to get the dirt. <laughs> yeah, she's in the new book, yeah. 
Pamela famous groupies are in the new book. Pamela Bar, who's still doing it? Who's still doing the groupie thing? Like I mentioned, Cynthia Plastercaster, Winona Ryder, yourself. Oh, yeah. Who's still doing it? Well, they're all different girls, new girls. You know, they're all over the world. It's all still going on. Some of the the, the girls that used to do it way back when don't do it so much anymore. And I don't really do it anymore. I mean, you know, I'm, in, I'm with a musician now, and I'm in love and everything. But I'm not. I don't consider myself a groupie anymore. I'm really more part of just the scene and I really always was it's just that that word came along and it, it shouldn't be negative it was it was not negative back then Pamela how do you keep healthy because you've had some health scares in past years how do you keep healthy I had breast cancer but I think it's all gone now I went through surgery and radiation and everything I just eat healthy and I exercise I do yoga I do kundalini yoga I do uh, I have a lot of facials I you know run I do all kinds of things to stay healthy and I am a vegetarian I'm 57 years old. Some, something's working. You know, as I said earlier, you and Cynthia Plastercaster both look amazing. What's the food that you ingest? I mean, rock and roll and food. What can you recommend? She works out a lot, too. We, we work out. We stay very, very active, dance like crazy. Um, I don't eat meat. I haven't had meat in 35 years. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with it. It takes three or four days to digest, so I don't have to go through that. I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think very good thoughts. I think positive thinking and optimism and living in the moment has a lot to do with it, too. Pamela DeBar, winding up, were you around at the creation of any famous rock and roll songs? Or do you share any co-writing that maybe wasn't credited to you? Do you were you there when somebody was writing a song? I was, I probably. I mean, I was with Jimmy and Robert a lot when they were diddling around. I remember one day in particular, I have a guitar that all my friends played, and I they sat, I sat in between them, and they passed the guitar back and forth and were playing, and so, so that was pretty astounding. And I've been with the, the burritos a lot, and we used to go to a lot of rehearsals, so I was, saw a lot of Flying Burrito Brother rehearsals. And But any particular song that you remember when actually it gestated, when actually it first came out? What do you mean, that I was there before? Yeah, like you heard the note, and then you heard it on a record, that sort oh, of yeah, thing. yeah, a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah, I was with a lot of these guys when they were writing songs, and around the music when it was very early and no one had heard it yet. Yeah, I still am. I love that. It always makes you feel kind of important, you know. Quickly here, Pamela DeBar. Tim Buckley, Red Crayola, Brian Wilson. Any memories of those individuals? I saw Tim a lot at uh, the Troubadour. He was on the same label with me. He was my label mate, so I went to see him play a lot. And uh, I didn't know Brian Wilson at all. I love him, I admire him, but I don't know him. I met him recently, and he was pretty out there. How about the Red Crayola? Any run-ins with the Red Crayola at all? Who is the Red Crayola? They were just a 60s rock band oh. that still continues on till today. Oh, no, I don't know about them. Maybe I should. <laughs> Pamela DeBar, Ali Sheedy as Pamela DeBar. Wasn't Ali Sheedy going to be Pamela DeBar in your book? She was the first person to option my book for a film, and it just didn't happen. You know, she had the option for three years. I've been trying to get this movie made for 18 years now, so it's going to happen. It is going to happen. So any hints as to who will be Pamela DeBar censored when the movie version comes out? Any hints? No, just some gorgeous young girl. I don't know, some sexy, hot young girl. And the future, Pamela, this book you're putting out has a chapter on the girl from Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. What can you tell the people about her? She sounds fascinating. The king. She is. Tura Satana uh, was a Japanese-American stripper uh, in the early 50s, and she met Elvis in the South, and she says she taught him how to do everything. Not only to have all various types of sex, but to dance. And I have a ch my first chapter of my new book, Let's Spend the Night Together, is about her. It's pretty great. And that book will be out when? Uh, next spring, spring 2007. 
Pamela DeBar, Zappa Beefheart. I think it's amazing that they helped shape your career. Just think how your career could have gone wrong if the wrong people helped shape your career. It's so wonderful that it was Beefheart and Zappa. I met Beefheart in high school. That changed everything. You know, I was just a regular girl, sort of. I mean, I was already into the Stones, but Beefheart? When you're 16, yeah, it, it worked. And then from there I met Frank, and yeah, I mean, I was so fortunate to be with such hip people so young. Did you know anybody that was steered the wrong way by other musicians? Like, what would happen if you encountered Sky Saxon in 66 instead of Beefheart and Zappa? Uh, I probably wouldn't have made a record, and I wouldn't be a legend today. And the legend is Pamela? Debar. So, Pamela, winding up here, what was it like to be on Larry King? What's Larry King like? Oh, Larry King was so respectful. He, my first two TV appearances were the Today Show, which is a very big show in America, and Larry King. So once I got those two out of the way, I could do anything. And Larry was wonderful. He talks to everyone the same way. Everything's very serious. You know, all the stuff he asked me is the same thing he asked Jesse Jackson, who I had to follow one day. I've done Larry twice. It was great. Have you had any fun times with any politicians at all? No, but I think Bill Clinton is hot. Would you ever consider politics at all? Because, you know, Connie, isn't Connie from My American Band or whatever name of that song is? An American Band, yes. An American Band. What's the story behind Connie? I think she's running for some sort of governmental official or something like that. She is. She's in my new book, too. But, no, she's not running. She was with Bill Clinton, but he denies it. But she's, she's in the new book, so you have to hear her story then. But she's the girl from the song, right? From, yes. three, from uh, Grand Funk Railroad? Yes. yes, she is. I thought she is running for mayor. No. <laughs> I, I, if, if she is, I don't know about it. I just heard from her last week. I don't think so. And lastly here, Pamela DeBar, what's your favorite Duran Duran side project? Arcadia or Power Station? Oh, of course it's got to be Power Station because my husband sang with him for a while. He replaced Robert Palmer. He got to do Live Aid. It was so cool to see him sing in front of a billion people. And what do you think about Cynthia Plastercaster moving from penises now to breasts? Oh, God, I'm so thrilled. She's supposed to do mine. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be her next cast. I love it. Well, anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Pamela DeBar? No, thank you. I think you've covered it. Or people can <laughs> buy the book. Please buy the book. Please Recently buy. reissued, too. It's reissued, yes, $14.95. Maybe a little more in Canada. Probably $16.95. And maybe not even censored in Canada. No, Canada, $20.95. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Pamela DeBar. Why should people care about I'm with the band and Pamela DeBar? Because the time I lived through in, in, in the 60s and early 70s, and music was a revolutionary. It's never going to come again, and I was right in the middle of it. Well, thanks so much, Pamela DeBar. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. Do-do.
Who are you? I am Feist. Feist, tell me, is it true that you are responsible for making Justine from Elastica show her underwear in public? I'm probably one of a few people that can claim that they've done that, yes. Could you please explain the situation? How did you, Feist, force Justine from Elastica to show her underwear in public, on stage? I, I, I was not there when she bought the jeans. It was not my choice that she buy jeans. It was so low slung. But uh, I was there when she was gyrating around wearing um, a WWF-style metal uh, wrestling belt that was up on her waist, and her jeans were down a little bit lower, and then all of a sudden there was thong. There was, there was thong. And this is when you were playing with peaches. Yeah, that actually, that show was a Daddy Segetti Feist duo bill. We did a cross-Canada tour where we shared a band featuring the world provider, who I, I know that you've recently done an interview with, who's playing tonight as well in Vancouver. And, um, and we were, it was our homecoming show at the Ted's Downstairs, whatever, Collision, Wrecking Yard, whatever it was. And uh, Peaches and Gonzalez were in town, too, and they crashed the party. They basically literally showed up and did some songs with us, and then it turned into a three hours after that smorgasbord. Peaches Gonzalez, Taylor Savvy, Feist, Bitch Lap Lap, and, and Elastica were in town, so they got in on it, too. So how did that feel, turning around and looking? And did you look at Justine from Elastica, like her underwear? And I think it actually fell down a bit, too, didn't it? I think there was not very much Elastica in the elastic of her elasticated thong. Leslie from the band Feist. Feist, what was your role exactly in Peaches? Like, were you the hype man? Were you the hype man? I was, if, if I had had an enormous clock I could wear around my neck, that's sort of the character I would have been playing. I was the, I was the representative of the audience on stage. I was there to sympathize with them and have them sympathize with me as if the, the kind of wide-eyed, oh my God, what's happening, and yet somehow getting with it. That's what any audience member would do if they got up on the stage with Peaches. They'd want to be game. They'd want to be in it, but they'd also be a little shocked. So I was like a sympathetic figure to draw people in, keep them more unaware, and then once they were in Peaches could do the double one-two punch. Now, Feist, I was wondering, what are the recommendations to people out there that want to be a hype man or hype woman? What do you say? Like, during Peaches, you'd be like, what's up, Peaches? What are the words you use to be a good front person, hype person? Well, I think one of the most important things is that you can't get too attached to the microphone. You have to do a lot of miming. You have to do a lot of physical hyping, but you got to leave the mic to the person with the voice box, the person who's there to deliver their message, and Peach is being that person. So a lot of the time, I would purposely take the cable out of the end of my microphone and then do the hyping without any microphone, but with the prop microphone. Leave the talking to the woman who's there to deliver, deliver the goods. How about words? What sort of words do you use? And what sort of words do you use on stage now? And have you taken your experience as a hype man to new heights now? Well, now I need a hype man. I, I would appreciate if someone would come and kind of be the hype man. My band are pretty good. I got some pretty good... Uh, they're, they're like the heckle-proof band, man. Anytime someone throws something from the audience and I, I pretend I'm tuning my guitar because I don't quite know where to go, I, they're one of the boys, without fail, bounces something back to the audience. Feist, do you remember doing a gig with the Bloody Gashes? No. This is a gig that Peach has played with the Bloody Gashes, a band called the Bloody Gashes. And what I wanted to ask you about was nudity and rock and roll. I understand they were opening for Peaches. They got nude, and then you guys decided, wow, do we need to get nude? When is nudity necessary in rock and roll? Ah, I see. I think I'm, it's all slowly coming back to me because there was a lot of... Uh so a lot of hijinks at those early gigs, those art gallery, underground, after-hours gigs. But 
Um, Let me just set the stage. So the buddy gashes are up there. They kind of get naked. And then you're in the audience with Peaches thinking, hmm, do we get naked for the show? Because if we get naked for this show, everybody will want us to get naked for every show we do. Well, well, that's the thing is when someone's opening who's, who's taken it to another level, you, if you try to follow them, then you're going to fall flat on your face. You've got to stick to your plan. You've got to stick to your thing. Nudity is not necessarily on, on the Peaches' uh, menu you know it's like she goes everywhere but there it's always a matter of what you don't give up that people want a little more a little more titillating peaches is intelligent that way she's not she's not uh, she's not doing it in the, the playboy simplicity styles but i understand when you got up on stage here after the bloody gashes you guys fake stripped like you worked the bloody gashes tank tops do you remember doing that oh my this is you're opening portals in my memory that have not been the creaky rusty hinges it's like i can barely open those portals so that kind of comes back or not really? It doesn't. It sort of does because I think then I owned that tank top for a while, but I couldn't even remember what. It was a wild night. Yeah, it was, a, it was such a wild night. Leslie Feist, here we are at the Vancouver Folk Fest. Amazing. How did this happen? Yeah, you're playing a folk fest and you just played a blues fest. How many fests have you, have you done a punk fest? What is the fest history for Feist? The fest sufficed of the 2006. It's like they pick a genre, and apparently that's what I'm able to do. I don't know. I don't understand. I guess I'm multifaceted, or I guess everyone hears what they want to hear. Look at a man, and that's the way he appears to you. Listen to a CD, and that's the way it sounds. So are you going to offer anything different at the Folk Fest versus the Blues Fest? And how did you go over at the Blues Fest? How did the bluesers, like, feist? Well, I actually had a dream last night and woke up murmuring to myself in the dark. And I had this dream that I was playing solo at a huge festival, which I've done a lot. In Europe, even this year, I went and played a few solo, which is a whole other thing. You're in front of that many people, and you're alone, and it's hard. You're like, hey, over here, there's no way to bounce. There's nothing to reverberate off of. So it just flies and dissipates in the air. So I had this dream that I got up there, and it was just chatty, chat, chat. And I started to play... Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, which I actually don't know how to play and I actually couldn't sing along to even if I tried. And all of a sudden the whole audience was like weaving back and forth and singing along. And in my dream, I thought to myself, this is, this is great. This is, makes it so much easier. So I guess going to happen today. Well, maybe I'm only going to do uh, Bob Dylan songs at the Folk Fest. So, Feist, you're very talented. Blues Fest, Folk Fest. If only you played drums. Wait a second. You do play drums? I try. Only with Jason Collette. He's the only one who will let me. I've seen pictures of you playing drums. Is there a drum fest in the works for Feist? How long have you played drums? I, I, I have played drums for less time than I'm going to play drums because I intend on being a drummer. Feist, is it true you really have four Junos? Have you really won four Junos? It's true. I have, my mom has a little soccer team going on her mantle at her house in Calgary. Like, that is pretty impressive. Four. How the hell did that happen? Because I'm a part of this band called Broken Social Scene, and they just keep tossing Junos at them. Oh, come on. Also, yourself. Well, okay, those two, those ones, too. And I loved it in the Juno Awards a few years ago. You were up there, and you kind of stopped playing, or there was some sort of technical difficulty, wasn't there? I love it. It was... It was I mean, sorry, I didn't mean love for you to go through with that, but I loved the emotion that was shown. Like, you just went on with it. It was... It was uh... It was so so extreme that it couldn't be anything but funny. I mean, 
I think there was 20,000 people in the arena, and then there was a bazillion, million, and gazillion people watching the TV, and then all of a sudden, the PA explodes and starts to make airplane crashing noises, and everyone starts screaming because they're, what's going on? And I kept playing, and everyone's running, and this is good. I can set the record straight now. Finally. Finally, it's my chance. The, the PA exploded, and apparently there's like a broadcast mix and there's a in the place where I am mix and I had no way to know that on the broadcast mix nothing had gone wrong in TV land people were sitting there eating their popcorn none the wiser to what was going on but meanwhile just under my vision there was all the techs running freaking running like yelling screaming tossing cables at each other and then all of a sudden they all stopped and it was like slow motion like in the movie when everything just slows down and I thought well they stopped so I guess we must not be live to air anymore so I stopped and sort of calmly you know everyone's screaming nothing's happening musical anymore so I leaned down to the guy down there I said so I, you guys stopped and he looks up at me and goes with the big eyes no we're still alive like that with the most beautiful eyes because if he had been panicking I would have panicked and I just laughed and got up and tried to finish the song but what pisses me off is that apparently as it went further west and they had the chance for the later time zones they cut it out so it looked like I just screwed up they didn't let the moment have its moment to show that it actually wasn't my fault you know or at least give people slight hints that it was uh, not just me messing up the song on national tv Feist, you still like to draw on yourself? You like to draw on yourself, don't you? Are there any drawings on you today? There are no, no, none. It was a phase. It, it'll come back, I'm sure. What is your obsession with puppets? Some artists are afraid of puppets. Why are people afraid of puppets? Who's afraid of puppets? Vanilla Ice is afraid of puppets. <laughs> well, then I won't be pulling out my sock puppet around him. I'm sensitive to people's uh, phobias, but I'm, not, I'm definitely not afraid of puppets. I'm not very good at doing puppets, but I'm a great fan of puppets. Leslie Feist, is there a Leslie Feist Feist perfume? No. Sweat. Sweat, I guess. I thought there was a Feist perfume, and I was wondering what it does to the men. Well, you have a cologne, don't you? Isn't there a Feist cologne? There is not a Feist cologne, but I think you're mistaking a cologne that has utilized my song to sell their cologne, and you're thinking it's mine. I wish it was, because if I was making the money they're making, then I could, uh, I could make a drum album. I could buy a drum kit. Feist, are you erotic? Um, yes. What is erotic, Feist? What is erotic? That's something that does not require a microphone or a video camera. Because what I was wondering, Feist, is Jack Spicer. Who is Jack Spicer, and why is he erotic? Uh, Jack Spicer is a poet, and he's erotic, I guess, because he was probably a human who had the full range of human abilities. But I can't say especially why he would be erotic more than any other poet or person. I was curious about him because he did some famous Vancouver lectures, and I understand he's sort of an inspiration, or he's maybe going to be utilized somewhat, I know he's dead and all, on your next CD? No, in no way is that the truth. I, I have his book and I love it, but uh, introduced to me by the Apostle of Hustle, uh, Andrew Whiteman. He's a, a great Jack Spicer fan and uh, introduced me to Jack Spicer's books, not him as a man. But uh, no, that's uh, you got, you're barking up the wrong tree. Feist, I wanted to ask you about this thing here that appeared recently in Chart Magazine. I don't know if you can hold this for a second. I don't know if you've seen this at all. It says, Who I Have the Hugest Crush On by Alex Chow of Islands. Oh, oh, I met this guy. Yes, and here's his little story. Feist, I have the hugest crush on Mrs. Feist, Mrs. as I like to call her. She is my true number one. 
Wow. She is the foxiest fox from Foxville. <laughs> she stole my heart when I met her at a broken social scene show. Uh-huh. I went up and introduced myself and then thought for a moment that she cared. <laughs> I cared. I cared. Months after, she came to a metric show and didn't even acknowledge my presence. Ah, oh, I call that true love. <laughs> well, I guess love is always uh, stirred. The fires of love are stirred through uh, someone ignoring you. So do you remember it all? Alex Chow from the band Islands, yeah. who calls you one of his favorite crushes. And he apparently says we're going to get married and live in the sub- suburbs. In- I censored that part out from you. In Newfoundland. And I'm going to have two children with him. Is this guy psychic? Because if that's really going to happen, I better get his phone number or something. I can provide you with that, actually. Um, the thing is that... Um, Alex Chow of Islands had two things that, about him that made him very recognizable. One was a completely white suit, and one the other was a violin. And oh, I guess there's also the fact that he was backstage in the dressing room marked Islands. So in that, in that situation, I knew who he was, and I was able to compliment him on his playing. And he actually serenaded uh, us, me, I would like to think me, and everybody else in the backstage with an amazing classical piece. But take... Uh, Take the man away from his props, and what is a man? I, I'm sorry, Alex, that I didn't recognize you at the metric show, but my, my eyes were glued to Jimmy Shaw. So it's kind of like the Marilyn Manson thing. You don't really recognize Marilyn Manson out of costume, so he should just dress up all the time and be proud and embrace the islandisms everywhere. He should carry the violin everywhere. Well, what, I mean, do you wear your hat at all times? I do. Do you wear it all the time? I love my hat. Well, I know, but there are moments where you don't want people to see you in your hat, therefore see you as you, and then you can just have a coffee at the corner store without getting talked to as Nardwar. I'd love to have those problems. Bring them on! (laughs) Feist, I was also wondering a bit more about Chart Magazine. One of the staffers there, Elizabeth Chorney Booth, claims that you stole her mittens. I'm not a thief. Okay, borrowed? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Mittens and Chart Magazine. Alex knows. I should call Alex and ask him about the mittens. I, I No, I don't know what the mittens are about. She might have lent me some mittens and then for some reason decided to call me a thief. Elizabeth. I'm not sure if it's the word thief, but are you having a lot of people come from the past, Leslie, and like approach you like, oh, Leslie took the mittens, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's this, there's, uh, I, I've, I've been hearing some interesting sanding overs of the truth. To make stories more palatable for people to be able to deliver them back at me. And then I go, wait a minute, that's not how it happened. But it's a, in fact, after the case, it's, it's more important what memory they have to carry around that makes them uh, be able to have a laugh at my expense. So they can have it however they need it. Leslie, how did you learn your French? Was it cereal box French? Definitely lait, milk, pain, bread. It, I, it was Calgary French. Product French. And has this come to haunt you? Like, I understand. You know French, but people in France don't like your French? They don't like you singing in French in France? Because I don't actually know French. When you know Calgary French, that's not actually French. They actually say to you, Feist, you speak Calgary French. Is <laughs> that worse than, like, Quebecois French? There was, a, there was a turning point for me understanding how I was going to manage to get by in France, if at all, was one time I was having dinner with some people after a show and in, in some little town somewhere with Gonzales when I was touring around Europe with my uh, compadre, Gonzales, and everybody was saying, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Calgary. And, and they were like, ah, they didn't understand. And then, and then jokingly and over 
emphasizingly, I said, Calgary. And they all went, oh, Calgary. And I, I just thought, oh, that's, you got to get with the guttural. You got to get with the throat, the, the, the throat tonsil gymnastics. And you got to get with the And all of a sudden, uh, I was having a much easier time being understood. In France, it's basically home of cheese, isn't it? I love cheese. I got a disease. I'm addicted to cheese. How is the cheese in France? Is it all it's made up to be? It's all it's made up to be. It's all there. It, there's, it's wooden platters of cheeses with flags stuck in them in every backstage. It's the most glorious thing. How about when you come to North America? Have you had an interesting cheese backstage doing gigs in North America? Because you've done many gigs in North America. How is the cheese backstage? Is there any local cheeses to check out? No, and you get you get so that you kind of like the exoticism of the old fort again, or the like mild cheddar. All of a sudden, you're like, oh yeah, grilled cheese sandwich when I was a kid. Oh yeah, I used to melt cubes of this in my craft dinner to make it extra better, you know. Uh, and then you really did learn cereal box French. You call cheese fort. I call that too. Fort. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> fort. Yeah. Yeah. E? Leslie Feist. Who is Clement Greenberg? Oh. Clement Greenberg is an art critic from New York City, or at least he was uh, residing and working in New York, who uh, I suppose in, in, a, in a strange way was my father's mentor. He's a very famous art critic, and your father is quite an artiste. Could you explain a bit about your father being an artiste, like being collected by Clement Greenberg, one of the most famous art collectors in the world? Your dad is collected. Yeah, my dad... Uh, not that you're not... Are you collected? I'm not quite the vintage to be collected yet. But, um, no, my dad... Uh, he he was a painter, and for whatever reason, Clement Greenberg started, took a shine to him and came by his studio. And I wasn't born yet, but there's stories about my uh, my little brother in the high chair and Clem hanging out. And yeah, it was. Uh, I, I get the feeling that he was almost he was sort of my dad's enabler, you know, in the way that someone enables you to feel like you can. Like, someone who you respect understands what you're doing, therefore, all full steam ahead, you know? You are collected, though, Feist, aren't you? Like, you go to YouTube and there's tons of videos. Do you feel you're collected? Or is there any little instance where you felt you've been collected? You know, somebody has a lot of your stuff, seen a lot of video. Like, every gig you know that you do is now being taped or something? Well, now it's a little bit like when you see the cell phone being held up. In the past, I naively thought it was someone going, Jenny, check it out. It's that song you played me once. And they go like this. But now I realize it's like they're making a, a video. But uh, as long as it's not like butterfly pins in the, in the uh, cork board, I'm okay to be collected. A little while ago, winding up here with Leslie Feist, I saw a video on YouTube of you in Hollywood, and it was an amazing backdrop behind you. Were you backing up some bigger artists in Hollywood in Los Angeles, or do you travel with a backdrop? Oh, that amazing light board? Let's yeah. just say it's mine. Yeah, it's mine. It cost $1 million. <laughs> No, uh, that was at the KCRW Evening Becomes Eclectic show, and it was the most stupendous light board I've ever seen in my life that since then I've gotten wool blankets and Christmas lights and poked it through and tried to create the same effect to little effect. That's amazing because that show is kind of priding itself on being independent, yet they have the biggest backboard ever. I, I, yeah, I guess it was truly just for my benefit. And then there's Jumbotrons. 
There was jumbotrons next to the light board. Do you feel pressure to have a banner? Is there a feist banner that goes behind you when you play? Will you ever get a feist banner? Do you like banners? No, I had a terrible experience in By Divine Right where, where we were opening for the Tragically Hip in all these enormous, enormous domes. And uh, actually, that was the birth of DJ Cheese Tray. When you're talking, you're love, you love cheese. Well, my lactose intolerant drummer, Mark Goldstein, also a poet, he, uh, he became DJ Cheese Tray on that tour. That was one of the memorable stories among many. But the other was that we decided we needed a banner so that all the people coming, filing in with their beers and their foam hats, their like foam beer insert here, straw, let's go watch the hip woohoo hats, that they would know who this band was playing who they didn't care about. And uh, someone's friend of a friend of a friend made, I, I was the most heinous banner on earth, which is like bubble letters. It looked like we were like Hanson or something. And, and since then, you just, you can't, no, no banners. Have you seen any bands with banners that you do like? Just going on the banner tip, winding up here with Feist. I'm just fascinated by banners. I tap his shoulder. I'd stick with Nardwar for, for like months. I, this is like, I've been waiting years for this, but thanks, Gary. Uh, okay, winding up here, lastly. Yes, yes, yeah, all right. Banners I liked, well... Well, there's, there's, there's a, it's not a banner, but it's a prop that Jason Collette uses with his band. And he took an old dresser he found on the side of the street, and he's a carpenter. So he took all these drawers out, and he put hinges in special places. And because they play an electric piano, and they want to create the effect of an acoustic piano, they just put the electric piano behind this wood, and people hear what they see, and all of a sudden it sounds like a piano just because there's this wood in front of it. And I thought that was pretty ingenious. That's that is amazing. I saw the legendary punk band from the 60s, The Seeds, and they reunited and did the exact same thing. I'm like, how did you get those keyboard sounds? And I looked at the keyboard, and it was a brand new keyboard in an old case. I love that. Yeah, you people hear what they want to hear. Feist, Leslie Feist, can you please tell me the importance, lastly, of the Bee Gees and Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> uh, there's not much importance to me personally for the Bee Gees, uh, except for Greece. I, I loved Greece when I was a kid. There was always Star Wars or Greece. You had to pick your team, and I was always a Greece kid. In fact, on a recent Air France flight, they showed Greece, and I, I was in heaven for those two hours. But um, Little House on the Prairie is a whole other story. It's like, I don't know if it's warped or, or positive, but my childhood was formed by the Ingalls. I mean, there I was living in Calgary with my single mom, and... All of a sudden, I was Laura Ingalls in my imagination. I don't know if it's good to, to dream so far away from your reality. Have you met any cast members from Little House on the Prairies? No, but I, I, uh, I did date a guy in France for a while who looked uncannily like Charles Ingalls, and when I realized that, it was over. It was just too close to La Maison. Well, thanks so much for your time, Feist. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? No, but uh, huge respect to Nardwar, the human serviette. Well, thank you very much, Feist. Really appreciate it. And keep on rocking in the free world and doot, 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 doot. Doot, doot. <laughs> in a dressmaker shop in green. Like tongues on poles or boards in an ashtray. Lunchtime packages waxed and wrapped and held. Down a dusty road inside an apron for. 